Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, December 9th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiringminds. Today's episode is brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash minds for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash minds. Heifer International, help end hunger. So a lot of changes happening, obviously, in these months. And one of the things that struck my eye today was the choice of Scott Pruitt to lead the Environmental Protection Agency. Struck your eye? Struck you like a knife in the eye? (laughs) Yes, pretty much. Uh, It's an interesting choice uh, and one that makes, of course, me a little nervous since it's a person who apparently thinks fossil fuels are great uh, and that uh, climate change uh, is not really a problem. So it's an interesting choice. To lead the EPA. But that makes this week's interview all the more relevant. So this week I interviewed David Grinspoon, whose new book, Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And it actually has a positive look at the kinds of changes that humans are inflicting onto our Earth. So it's not your usual doomsday story of climate change, although, of course, there is some realism uh, in there, of course. And the perspective that he takes, though, is that our species has adapted, of course, at great cost uh, to its own individuals, but that that's something that we should think about, the fact that we have the power to adapt and that we need to think about ways in which we can use that power uh, to ensure the survival of our species. Is this suggesting that we are beyond the point that we can reverse some of these effects of climate change and we should be focusing on adaptation instead of mitigation? I think that's 
a through line that is visible in the book. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should just throw up our hands and not do anything. There are, of course, things that we can do uh, that can affect the way our planet will be 100 years from now or 10,000 years from now. And that's kind of his thesis, is that we should be thinking about the Earth in terms of 10,000 years, not just in the terms of the next 10 years. Uh, and of course, that's very difficult to do. But I think it allows for some pretty interesting ways of thinking and perhaps uh, novel solutions to some of the problems that are going to be facing us in the coming decades. So David Grinspoon is an astrobiologist. He's also an award-winning science communicator. So his book is really easy and fun to read. Um, he's a frequent advisor to NASA on space exploration strategy, uh, which will come up in our interview. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my conversation with David Grinspoon. There's still time to find the perfect custom gift or even to make it. And that's where Blurb comes in. Blurb custom photo books make gifting easy. It's a free bookmaking platform that allows you to create customized, professional quality photo books for loved ones from your computer, iPhone, and iPad. Want to throw an album from your phone onto the pages of a book? You can make it a book in minutes with their new mobile app. It's fast and easy book creation. It makes thoughtful, one-of-a-kind gifts that won't be forgotten especially great for family photo books or travel books or even cookbooks. Turn your most popular holiday recipes into a cookbook the whole family can enjoy or relive your family's memorable moments in a photo book featuring the best of 2016. You can print one copy or many. They have free creation tools and a range of formats. Think photo books, trade books, magazines, ebooks. You can choose from a range of square, portrait and landscape sizes. I personally love Blurb. It was the very first photo book that I had printed, and I still to this day look through both the travel books and the wedding book that I created on Blurb.com. So, want to create a custom gift this holiday? Go to Blurb.com minds and enter code minds for 25% off unique holiday gifts. That's Blurb.com minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb. Make a book. Leave your mark. This episode is sponsored by Audible, with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. It lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Audible is offering Inquiring Minds listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by signing up at audible.com slash inquiringminds. You can choose from books like The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan Haidt, or Hillbilly Elegy, A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis by J.D. Vance. Audible also has a great listen guarantee. If you decide you don't like the book you chose, no worries. You can exchange any book you aren't happy with for another title. Anytime, no questions asked. Once again, that's audible.com slash inquiring minds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, David Grinspoon. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So Stephen Hawking recently came out saying that we have about a thousand years before we need to leave this planet, <laughs> um, which was kind of a shocking statement. And here you are telling us that we are in a very unique place and time in that the Earth is in our hands. So what do you mean by that? What's so special about where we are right now? Well, first of all, um, Stephen Hawking is obviously a really, really brilliant person. But when he says we have a thousand years left, I don't think he has any real solid basis for that. If, you know, if I were to uh, make some statement about black holes, 
then I, I certainly wouldn't uh, want to go up against Stephen Hawking. But th there tends to be this phenomenon where somebody who has a reputation about being brilliant on one thing is 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 a sage on everything, and I, and 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 it shouldn't necessarily be taken completely seriously. I put this in that category. There's really no basis for that thousand years. There is a basis for um, concern about the way we're con conducting ourselves on on the planet right now, uh, and and that could, clearly can't last. Um, it would be much less than a thousand years if we uh, continued some of our profligate ways. Uh, but 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 we're not we're not going to. There there are a lot of trends that you can see. Population is going to level off in this coming century. And we're, we're learning some lessons about uh, living on a finite planet. Uh, whether we learn them quickly enough will determine uh, how much pain these lessons cause us. But, um, you know, there, there's no reason to think that uh, we won't be around in some form in a thousand years. To me, it's really a question of uh, how gracefully and non-painfully we can learn the lessons that we need to learn now that we are a species that has the capacity to change the planet. And we, we have to uh, come to terms with that. And so when you talk about our profligate ways, are you mainly talking about the effects that we've had that have contributed to global warming? Or are you talking more generally about the fact that, you know, we tend to populate the world and, you know, create things like nuclear weapons? When you think about our future, do you take into account our tendency to make poor decisions? <laughs> um, or is it simply about, you know, what is the effect that we've had on our environment? No, absolutely. I mean, our, our inability to make good decisions in the way that we conduct ourselves on a global scale, that's the core problem behind all these other problems. But yes, when I talk about our profligate ways, obviously global warming looms large right now, but it's, it's one of many ways in which we are being forced to confront ourselves as a global entity. You can look at, um, there, there's a whole very compelling uh, set of, of data that shows how we are torquing nearly every natural system of Earth. It's not just the CO2 and, and the climate, but the, the hydrological system of Earth, the nitrogen cycle, the sulfur cycle, uh, you know, obviously deforestation, ocean acidity. There are uh, very many global indicators that are, uh, you know, sort of heading off the charts right now. And the core problem is that we have this ability to actually make good decisions on on a small scale. We've been very successful at acting in uh, in small groups and inventing things that have allowed us to survive. The problem is we've been so successful at that that without realizing it, we've become a global entity, and we lack any kind of uh, a process right now for making decisions on that scale. So we're acting on a scale that we are not making choices on. And that's a very dangerous possibility. That's a very dangerous combination. We, uh, we don't have situational awareness. You know, you think of a child learning situational awareness that if you're going to be um, moving around in a certain way, you have to be aware of those motions and the effect they're, they're having on their environment. Are you going to hurt yourself? Are you going to hurt something else. Well, we as a global species are acting on this scale that we are not conscious and uh, 
and not making decisions on. And that's a very dangerous combination. Yet I see that actually rapidly changing. And that's where I have some hope that, that it, it, even in this last um, 20 years with all of the fuss about global warming, even though it's, it's quite concerning and quite alarming, we're having for the first time a real conversation about how we should be conducting ourselves on a global scale. And we're starting to uh, have this widespread perception uh, of the need to act on a global scale. And that's actually brand new. So, so that gives me, gives me some hope. And has your hope changed with the recent uh, election in the U.S. and this push towards nationalism seemingly across the world where, you know, people seem to be more concerned about taking care of their own selves rather than, you know, thinking about other and potentially vulnerable populations? You know, I mean, that that was sort of something that's shifted for me is this kind of hope in the sense that I feel like we're going to be moving backwards, at least in terms of, you know, how our president-elect has talked about uh, his approach to the environment and so forth. You know, does that does that concern you? Or do you feel like this is a small pendulum shift, but the global trend is still in the right direction? Well, of course, it concerns me. I'm um, very mindful of our need for leadership and our need to start acting um, as a as a species and certainly more locally as 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 a nation in a way that is more uh, cognizant of the future and our, our obligation to future generations. And certainly the, uh, the, the rhetoric expressed in the campaign by um, the, uh, the president-elect, I'm still sort of pinching myself when I'm saying that, um, is not compatible at all with that. Now, uh, you know, there, there, are a couple, there are a couple of reasons why I might temper that concern slightly. Um, one is that, first of all, one of my big points in the book is to think of the big picture, think of our thousand year plan, our 10,000 year plan. It doesn't limit the importance of the near term policy choices that we make, but it, 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 it helps us see that what we're doing now, you know, really is a blip in the longer term progress of the human race. And if you look at, there's all kinds of indicators that are very positive in terms of poverty you know, massively on the decrease over the decades and infant mortality massively on the decrease and the, the status of women on the rise globally. And that, you know, the, 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 there are a lot of positive trends um, that one can genuinely point to that, that, that uh, can point to a way out of some of the traps we've gotten ourselves into. At the same time, there's this election and this seeming turning away from the future that's very alarming. Now, a, a couple of things I, w I would point out. One is that the president is not that effective in making climate policy. That was very unfortunate during the Obama years when the president said all the right things or a lot of the right things and wasn't able to do that much. The flip side is also true. Uh, the president saying all the wrong things may not be able to do all that much about climate. There are a lot of inexorable economic forces that are actually moving in the right direction right now. Coal is on its way out. And there's nothing the president-elect can do despite what he says to change that. Uh, the, the, the coal is doomed economically, which is great news. And all those people in that industry in West Virginia and elsewhere, we, we do need to help them find other jobs or other things to do, or other means of livelihood, but it's not gonna be sending them back into the coal mines. That's, that's done. 
Um, and that's great. Uh, another thing is that, you know, it's the whole world is a lot bigger than the United States. And uh, the Chinese, you know, rapidly becoming the global economic superpower, they're getting really serious about climate change. Their cities are um, getting unlivable because of the amount of coal that, and, and gasoline they've been burning. And they're, they're getting serious about this. And, you know, the, the, <laughs> there's a lot of downsides to autocratic, uh, technocratic, centralized governments. But one upside, I suppose, is if they decide to get serious about climate, which they are, uh, they may be able to rapidly uh, transform their energy system. So, um, you know, and, and then finally, I would say that trying to predict anything that's going to happen right now post this election, you know, almost anything anybody predicts is going to be wrong. Nobody knows what this new president thinks or is going to do. I don't think he knows what he thinks or is going to do. And um, certainly there's a lot of uh, resistance uh, arising to some of the rhetoric about how he's going to tell NASA to stop doing earth science. Well, I, I work for NASA and we're not going to stand for that. We're going to keep doing earth science and, and, and make the case for it. Uh, you know, we'll get scientists to march on Washington if we have to. But um, there's going to be a lot of resistance. And who knows? Maybe there'll even be sort of a, a Nixon goes to China moment where the uh, the marshalling of resistance to this, the absurdity of a supposed national leader uh, turning away from one, really the biggest challenge of our age, maybe we'll catalyze some, something that will go in the opposite direction. So uh, I'm alarmed, but uh, I don't feel uh, like at all like it's game over. I just think that uh, it gives us new, new work that we have to do. So that brings us to uh, this claim that we are now officially in the anthropocene. Anthropocene. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that. Where do you put the accent? Well, An it's funny. It's funny because if you know the British say an, an Anthropocene, and uh, <laughs> some people say Anthropocene, some people say Anthropocene. Uh, you know, I don't really care as long as you know we know what we're talking about. It's the time of humanity on Earth, Anthropos, right? Humans, mm -hmm. and this is the term that uh, is being used by geologists now to indicate that, hey, we really are in a new geological age because there's a new force at work on the earth. In addition to the other forces that have long been at work with uh, like volcanism and plate tectonics and climate changes, sea level changes, now there's a new force and it's the global actions of humanity that are uh, demonstrably, quantitatively, demonstrably uh, one of the great forces on earth now that we're, we're moving as much dirt every year as much material as volcanoes and earthquakes we're uh, rapidly changing the hydrological cycle of the planet in fact if you add up all the water now behind dams in reservoirs made by humans it's five times the amount of water left in all the wild rivers and streams on the planet so we've really changed the hydrological cycle of the planet and the confluence of all these changes has led a lot of geologists to say, hey, this is a new chapter in Earth history. Let's call it the Anthropocene in recognition of this new force that is changing our planet. And so that's, you know, looking at it from the perspective of geologic time, which, of course, is much slower than a person's lifetime. Is that still true in that in that we can now sort of see observable changes? And, and is, is that the right kind of, you know, 
level of analysis that we should be in? Or are things changing so rapidly that we need to now look at decade by decade, the kinds of changes that we're affecting on the earth, rather than projecting out, you know, 100 or 1000 years? We need to understand the big view, because, um, you know, like Bob Marley saying that uh, we know where we're going, because we know where we're from. And it's important to understand our our story, our, our, our modern origin story is what's been uncovered by geology and cosmology and planetary science. Uh, you know, we were on this planet that that uh, coalesced out of a cloud four and a half billion years ago and part of a biosphere that that sprang up four billion years ago. And, and uh, you know, and, and there's been a sequence of changes that have happened to this planet, including uh, a couple million years ago, the evolution of, of hominids. And then, uh, you know, in the last hundred thousand years, the evolution of, of modern humans. And then, uh, you know, we left Africa and uh, populated the, the rest of the, the continents and wiped out the, you know, the, the, the megafauna, the big, the big animals and cultivated the land and started changing the climate and, uh, you know, all these accelerating changes. It's very important to perceive where we are now in light of that larger history and to have some sense, some vision of where we may be going uh, from that. You know, where, what kind of a world do we want to create? It's easy to see what we want to stop doing and what kind of a world we want to avoid. But I think we need to have a vision of where we might want to be going as a species. And that's not uh, to say that we should do that instead of worrying about what's happening this year or this decade. We Obviously, we have some immediate challenges, but our response to those challenges, I think, needs to be informed by this bigger view. Because, you know, one of our big challenges now is that we have problems that unfold on more than, on a longer timescale than one human generation. So to solve these problems, we have to collaborate with other generations. We have to see ourselves as acting in concert with our future selves, with future generations. This is something that some indigenous people knew about well, of course, their connection to the ancestors. And there's a way in which I think we almost need to rediscover re, uh, that. And with all our modern science and all our insights about the world, also discover, rediscover that spiritual sense of um, working with other generations, doing the right things now to hold up our ends so that future generations have the choices we want them to have. And so that longer view, longer than our own lives, I think is really essential uh, to inform the way we approach things, even though we obviously have to act on this much more immediate timescale that, that, that we're living in. How big a challenge is that at a place like NASA, where, you know, seemingly your your major overseer <laughs> uh, changes every four years, which could change, you know, so much about, you know, how, like, what kinds of changes come into NASA, you know, with every change in presidency, you know, like, is that, I guess the question I'm getting to is that I, I agree with you, but it seems like a lot of our um, scientific systems are set up to work against that. Well, yeah, not just our scientific systems, our, you know, our government, of course, um, changes every four years, and sometimes every two years. And that's challenging for any kind of long term commitment. Uh, you know, part of what our our federal workforce, of course, is also made up of a lot of civil servants who don't turn over turn over every two to four years, and um, you know maintain some continuity. And of course, the president elect says that he uh, he wants to uh, 
privatize things and get rid of some of that federal workforce. And part of the danger of that is because one thing that having a lot of federal workers who are not political appointees, one thing that that does is maintain continuity of some of these long-term things we need to do, whether it's building resilience of, uh, you know, our, against climate change, or in the case of the agency I work with, NASA, monitoring the Earth and studying other planets. So that is a challenge. But I will also say that there are uh, aspects of what we do with NASA that are inherently long-term and inherently require us to maintain a longer view. For instance, just this last year, we had this amazing spacecraft, New Horizons, that encountered the planet Pluto for the first time and sent us back amazing pictures of, uh, you know, this complex, interesting place that, uh, of course, everything we learn about other planets feeds back on learning about ourselves and our own planet. That spacecraft took nine years just to get from launching from Florida to flying by Pluto. Nine years. But it was a much longer journey than that. If you if you study the history of that mission, it was 25 years in the making in terms of when people started trying to advocate for it and starting to try to design it and get it approved and everything. So some of what we do with NASA, you know, is inherently much longer than that four year cycle. So to have any success at a lot of our projects, you know, we, we need that continuity. And there is at least some recognition in the uh, in the higher levels of government that that is required. Uh, you know, the big part of NASA, of course, that's under threat right now uh, that we're worried about is is the Earth sciences part of NASA. There's some people saying, uh, you know, in, the, in the, um, some of the new people coming into the government saying, well, NASA should just be about um, going to Mars and going to other planets. And, you know, that that's that's all just like political correctness studying the Earth, uh, you know, but that's, of course, uh, ridiculous. It's ridiculous, not just politically, but scientifically, because those of us who study planets, we cannot separate the study of the Earth from the study of other planets. You know, climate is climate. It's the same physics, and it's a different mix of greenhouse gases on Earth and Venus and Mars that, that uh, gives different amounts of warming on each planet and, and different kinds of clouds and different, you know, radiation flows. It's the same thing happening in different combinations in all these worlds, and studying any of them makes us smarter about all of them. And obviously, we have a, uh, you know, a, a particular need to really understand what's happening on Earth. And that's driven by our scientific curiosity. But of course, right now, it's also it's a it's, it's a survival need. It's, uh, you know, talk about national security. If NASA stopped studying the Earth, that would be the most, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the biggest blow to any kind of security that any of us would have. And, I, you know, I just think despite the rhetoric I don't really see that happening. I just, uh, I, we won't stand for it. And I think that um, one way or another, um, cooler heads will prevail. We may be in for some battles. Uh, we, we will be, but they're, they're not just going to cancel Earth science at NASA. I just don't think that's going to happen. So what can we learn from other planets specifically? I mean, I used to always think like we're trying to understand Mars because eventually that's where we're going to have to live. <laughs> um, but, you know, what what other things can we learn that can help us solve problems here on Earth? Besides the sort of obvious, you know, the technical challenges of getting to Mars will lead to innovations that, you know, will 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 enhance our daily lives. Or What do you hope to learn from studying other planets that can help us solve problems on Earth? Well, there's so much. I mean, the, the, the biggest picture is that we're simply learning how planets work. And because we live on a planet, we need to know how it works. And you can't 
learn that in a vacuum. You need multiple examples. Uh, but there, there are a lot of specific concrete examples. And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a whole chapter about this in, in the book, Earth in Human Hands, uh, where, I, where I talk about learning from the planets. And one example I give is um, when we first got to Mars with um, Mariner 9, which was our first Mars orbiter in 1971, it was shrouded in a global dust storm. We didn't know planets could have global dust storms. But um, Mars does this to itself once every couple of years. It uh, envelops itself in, in dust. And by studying that storm and how it formed and the physics of what was happening to the atmosphere and the climate, we learned a lot about how climate and particulates and dust in a climate interact. And that led directly to the theory of nuclear winter. It was the same scientists, Jim Pollock and Carl Sagan and Brian Toon and some other scientists who were working on the dust storms on Mars. They said, well, what happens if, if Earth's atmosphere gets really full of, um, uh, of you know, dust and smoke and particulates? What, what could make that happen? And then they, they started thinking about nuclear winter. And um, that obviously led to a very important insight that is, um, you know, very uh, key to uh, hopefully protecting our own planet. Uh, another, there, there are several amazing examples that come from studying the planet Venus, because Venus is sort of a twin planet to Earth. There's obviously the fact that Venus has an extreme CO2-driven climate, you know, the hottest place in the solar system, because its atmosphere is not just 400 parts per million and increasing, like, like, like ours is, um, carbon dioxide is not just a minor component. On Venus, it's it's almost all carbon dioxide. It's about 96, 97% carbon dioxide and a very thick atmosphere. So that causes such an extreme greenhouse that it's 900 degrees out everywhere all the time on Venus. Life is impossible. So it's a, it's a way for us to study that sort of extreme climate, study the interaction of clouds with radiation. But but there, there are a couple of other, other interesting examples, if I may, that come from Venus. Um, acid rain. Venus is the most extreme case we know of acid rain and some of the same people and the same chemistry that led us to figure out what was going on in the clouds of Venus helped us to understand and deal with the problem of acid rain on Earth. Similarly, there's an interesting story with the, with the ozone layer, which um, you and your listeners know about the, the problem with the ozone on Earth. The way we first discovered that problem on Earth was came about through some studies of Venus where there was this weird mystery in the upper atmosphere of Venus where the oxygen and the ozone were going away and it didn't make sense. And scientists were trying to figure this out. And somebody said, hey, well, there's chlorine up there. Maybe the chlorine could be destroying the ozone. And they did some model and figured out that that was what was happening. And then some other scientists read that paper and they said, oh, wait a minute. We're putting a lot of chlorine into Earth's stratosphere from this, you know, these CFCs, these chlorofluorocarbons. I wonder if that's, to, oh, wait a minute. Oh, and they sounded the alarm. And it directly came out of the chemistry of solving this esoteric, curiosity-driven problem for understanding the upper atmosphere of Venus helped us realize what we were doing to the ozone layer on Earth. Now, we would have figured that out eventually, but we would have, it would have taken us more time. So there's a way in which just knowing more about what's going on in the other planets uh, gives us a, a wider scientific repertoire for understanding changes happening to climates and atmospheres of planets. And that makes us smarter about unintended consequences of the things we're doing on Earth. So your description of Venus is sort of sending shivers down my spine because it's making me wonder, you know, 
were we there <laughs> at some point, uh, you know, a couple million years ago and destroyed that planet and then had to start over again on ours? You know, the whole... Yeah, uh, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, right? I recently published an article about um, the extreme climate of Venus and, you know, somebody, uh, and I tweeted about it and somebody tweeted back, oh, well, um, you know, did they have an election there? And, you know, elect the wrong person. And it's, you know, it's it's sort of amusing um, because they, you know, we're faced with a problem of increasing our greenhouse. And Venus is the ultimate example of what happens when a greenhouse really runs away on a planet. Uh, it's, it's not really um, likely that that that's actually what happened on Venus. But in terms of an allegory, you know, don't let this happen to your planet. It's a uh, it's pretty powerful. And it's, you know, in a way, we're lucky to have a planet right next door that is so similar to Earth in terms of its bulk properties, its its size and its mass, and it's made out of basically the same stuff. But because it's a little closer to the sun, it went through this really extreme uh, case of uh, uh, global warming that is now a problem we're faced with. And because we have Venus next door, it, it allows us to study that in, in an extreme way. And, uh, you know, helps us improve our understanding and our our um, security and the knowledge that we really do understand enough about that physics to uh, hopefully in the future make much better decisions about how we manage our own planet. So that, of course, makes me wonder, too, you know, is it coincidence and luck that it's so much like us? Or is it, you know, is this is this is the Earth really the only place in the universe where life could have evolved to the extent that it did? You know, so where are we on the search for extraterrestrial life? Well, uh, we feel like we're making a lot of progress um, in a lot of ways. But, uh, you know, the short answer is we haven't found it yet. So as far as we know, there's only one planet in the universe that has life, which is, is our own very unique and precious Earth. However, we've been learning a lot about the history and the origins of life on Earth and about the uh, profusion of other planets in the universe. And everything we're learning points to the likelihood that life is widespread and that we may be on the trail of even being able to discover it soon. I mean, you know, when you and I were born, we didn't know anything about planets beyond our own solar system. Astronomers thought, well, there are probably planets around other stars, but we can't detect them. They're too far away. And then just in this last uh, 20 years, there's been a revolution, the exoplanet revolution, where now we are, we have the tools finally to start seeing if there are planets around other stars, and, and we're discovering they're everywhere. Almost every star, basically every star you see in the sky has planets around it. That's new knowledge. And then the next question is, what are those planets like? And we're just, that's just in its infancy. We're just at the point where we can start to learn something about those planets and even measure their atmospheres in ways that might reveal that some of them have biospheres, that some of them have life. So it's a very exciting time in that search. And, and of course, we're still exploring the other planets of our own solar system. And there's some places uh, even uh, in our own solar system where we haven't yet ruled out life and where there, there may, might be the right conditions for life. Uh, there, there's an ocean underneath Jupiter's moon Europa, underneath the ice. There's an ocean there that is, is a lot like um, the oceans on Earth. Uh, and there's energy sources and there's nutrients. So, so there should be life there as far as we understand it. So I feel like uh, we're at this very promising stage where we haven't yet found extraterrestrial life, but we're learning so much about life on Earth and about these other environments that it would not um, surprise me if within uh, your lifetime and my lifetime, if we uh, made that wonderful discovery that showed that we really are not alone in this universe. 
Wow. I want to take a minute to remind our listeners that Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future is David's new book, and it's out now. And it has much more fascinating detail of all the topics that we're covering in this interview. I highly recommend it. So what makes you optimistic about our future uh, when we seem to make poor decisions on so many different levels? And, you know, we seem well, to be looking, so... If, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I have studied the history of the human species a lot and read what other people have written about it and tried to see that as a chapter embedded in the larger story of our planet. And the history of our species is one of reinventing ourselves multiple times in response to crisis, reinventing ourselves in huge ways, learning to live in completely different ways, becoming essentially a different species. And actually, this has been in the past in response to climate change. Our species was nearly wiped out. Our, our, the sort of pre-humans were nearly wiped out in Africa about 190,000 years ago by climate change and survived by learning new ways to cooperate with one another and inventing new forms of technology, social and material technology, and basically learning to live in different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, then we, uh, at one point, uh, started doing agriculture and settled down into cities and that created new problems. Cities were horrible places at first because, uh, they were public health disasters. And then we, uh, we invented sewage systems. Uh, and largely solved the problem of living in cities. I mean, not that our cities are pr trouble-free, but that basic problem of how do you have so many people living together and not be a public health disaster was, was solved. by we, we take for granted sewage systems. They're an amazing invention. So what we need now is the sewage system of the 21st century. We have a new problem, which is we've become a global entity, um, uh, soiling our, our, our nest in, in a way that we, uh, we didn't anticipate and we're, we're sort of unprepared to deal with. But I think we just have to call upon those same human capacities of reinvention and uh, cooperation and communication. And there are a lot of really positive trends that convince me that we can do this. And I, I don't think it's going to be easy, be easy. I don't think it's going to be pain-free. We also tend to learn things the hard way. Uh, you know, climate change is coming and it's going to be painful and there are going to be um, people hurt. And I don't mean to say that this is all... Um, you know, a bed of roses. But a thousand years from now, there will be human beings living on the earth and we will have a different kind of energy system. We will not be using fossil fuels. It's impossible. Even if we made the worst possible choices, we couldn't still be using fossil fuels. There, there aren't going to be any. But the, of course, the smart thing to do is to switch our energy system immediately. Uh, but we're moving in that direction. The, uh, the economic forces are, are on the right side of this. And, uh, you know, population growth is scary, but uh, all, all reasonable population projections show climate leveling off and then starting to decline in this century. Um, we're getting better at intensifying agriculture and we're learning finally how to leave parts of the earth um, alone, relatively alone, and create wildlife corridors. And, you know, so just as we had to learn how to live well in cities, and we still have a lot to learn there, but we, there are major things we learned, we have to learn how to live well as a global entity now. And uh, it's slow and it's painful. And I, I think it's possible that the 21st century will be as bad as the 20th century. That's, to me, the bad scenario. And people say, wait, what do you mean? The 20th century wasn't so bad. But actually, think about it. Think about the wars and the famines 
that killed hundreds of thousands of people, hundreds of millions of people um, in in the twentieth uh, century. Um, you know, to me, our challenge is to make the twenty first century not as bad and better, and we we may not be able to do it. Uh, but at the end of the twenty first century, we're going to have some kind of a global civilization. We will not be using fossil fuels anymore; they'll be gone. We will have a population that is declining. And, you know, there are a lot of other trends. I mentioned infant mortality, um, maternal mortality, poverty, extreme poverty is half what it was 25 years ago, half. Um, and, uh, you know, so there are short term frightening things to worry about. But I still think that our long term history and some of the long term trends suggest very much to me that we have the capacity to reinvent ourselves in a way that will allow us to create a uh, just and sustainable global civilization. And our challenge is to get there with a, as little pain as possible. You know, we can do this the easy way, we can do this the hard way. The hard way is uh, learning through calamity. The easy way is learning through foresight and planning and, uh, you know, seeing what's coming and making adjustments. And with humans, it's always some combination of the two. And our challenge is to, as much as possible, go to the foresight model and not the learning from calamity model. So that certainly sounds a lot better to me than Stephen Hawking's dire predictions. But just as a, a one last thought, uh, let's say Stephen Hawking was kind of on the money with the thousand years and you had to pick a planet that would be most likely to support Earth or some other way. I mean, we can talk about you know, Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves and just talk about living in space. Um, what do you think is our best option if we had to leave the planet? Well, I don't like the idea of having to leave the planet. I don't like these escapist fantasies of, um, you know, to me, that's not the reason why we leave Earth. Uh, it, it is true, and Hawking and other people, and Elon Musk says this, there's some things I don't, there's certain things I don't agree with Elon Musk about, but I do agree that it will be valuable to have people living ultimately on more than just one planet as an insurance policy, because I do believe that life is precious, and I, I want to see it persist. And as long as we're on one planet, we are vulnerable to certain kinds of natural disaster or, or self-induced disaster. So in, so in the long run, yeah, let's, let's uh, move out into the universe and widely populate, um, you know, other planets, eventually planets around other stars. Um, sure, we don't have to multiply like rats, but I, I do like the idea of, uh, of diversifying our environments. As far as if I had to go or had to pick a favorite place, um, you know, if, if really if Earth was... Um, was dying, like in that, that David Bowie song, Five Years, which has been running through my head <laughs> since the election. You know that song? We've got five yeah. years. It's like, it's, it's a very poignant song. Anyways, uh, if that was the case, um, I think we could, we could create habitats in space that aren't actually on a planet. That's actually my favorite. So, Neil Stevenson. Have you, have you read Seven Eves? You should read you it. You know, I have not read that book. I need to. But when I, when I was in high school, I read a book called The High Frontier by this guy, Gerard O'Neill, who was a Princeton professor who devised this whole plan for humans to live in orbiting space colonies. And they were big, spinning, for artificial gravity, colonies that, they, they were nice places. It wasn't like you're living in a can. They had forests and water and trees and people doing all kinds of, you know, fun people things. And uh, he had this this very sort of utopian view of um, how people ultimately could go live in uh, off Earth and how it would be part of this plan to protect Earth and move the heavy industry off of the planet. 
And, uh, and I became a big fan and I actually went and met him. Some <laughs> my friends and I rode our bikes over to his house. We figured out where he lived. And, and, uh, it was interesting. But uh, this guy, Gerard O'Neill, was, you know, he was very influential on me as a kid. And I still have that kind of utopian view in my mind that someday human beings will want to go live elsewhere and um, create other kinds of habitats because you know you know in a certain sense that's what we do i mean you know after, ever since we left africa you know there are a lot of places on earth that we figured out how to live that naked human beings without technology could not survive you know in uh, in the arctic circle and in in the desert um you know we use our technology to modify uh environments to allow us to live so in a certain sense going to live on other planets or even just in space itself is an extension of that i just yeah, I, I, get, I find myself reacting against some of the escapist ideas that like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We'll trash Earth and go move somewhere else. It's like, no, Earth will always be this precious. It's our home. It's the home world. We have to care for it. And to me, the point of uh, expanding into space is largely to inform our ability to do a good job of taking care of the Earth. So, yeah, I'm all in favor of of humans moving out into the cosmos. And, you know, I mean, I like Star Trek as much as the next person, um, maybe even more. But um, I think that, you know, we have to be uh, careful to not let that be an escapist fantasy, but have it be a humanistic and Earth-centered uh, vision of how our expanding knowledge of the entire universe allows us to uh, increase our wisdom in a way that makes us better inhabitants of, of this planet and better co-inhabitants with the other species here. Awesome. Well, on that note, I want to thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, David Grinspoon. So clearly you talked to David after the election. I, and I, the sentence that caught my eye was the idea of scientists marching on Washington. <laughs> and, and how that goes against everything I've known scientists to be, that they're very careful to not be too politically active. But are we seeing a shift here? I mean, I think given the choice of some of the cabinet members, we're going to have to see a shift if scientists are going to see their work applied. And, you know, anyone who studies climate change, ultimately, I am making a huge inference here, but I would think is interested in their own survival. So, you know, they're going to be interested in policies that come from their research and not just have their research be buried and completely ignored. Uh, so I think maybe in a sense, this is a way to galvanize scientists to take a more direct uh, role in terms of how science affects society. You know, I was having a Twitter conversation with past guest Katie Mack, also an astrophysicist on Twitter. And uh, this idea that Maybe we need to iterate to the next step where there are science voters and scientists mobilizing might be part of that, especially around issues where, you know, we we need to take a stand uh, that there are lines that can be crossed that the science community, scientists included, need to uh, defend with such rigor and voice that it it translates to the ballot box. I also found it interesting, though, that he underscored the fact that not all scientists are going to be experts in all the things that they have opinions in, right? So, you know, my bringing up Stephen Hawking's ideas, and of course, Stephen Hawking has been in the news uh, recently making all kinds of pronouncements that have nothing to do with black holes. Uh, and of course, we see him as an intellectual and someone worthy of listening to. But I take David's point is that we should be looking at the experts in individual fields, too, uh, when we really want to think about what kinds of 
science we want to drive policy. So given all the doom and gloom that scientists are having lately with the new Trump administration coming in and appointing some folks that are labeled anti-science... Are you still optimistic? I am. I'm really optimistic because I also think that, you know, there's nothing indicating necessarily that funding for science is going to be cut by members of Congress or, you know, the, uh, by our politicians. I mean, maybe that's going to be true. Maybe, you know, Scott Pruitt's job is to dismantle the EPA. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but I also think that uh, science is going to become more and more important. And so, you know, I'm... I'm cautiously optimistic. That's not true. I'm entirely pessimistic, but I'm trying really hard uh, to see things in a positive light because uh, that's what, you know, keeps us working and doing the things that we do. Plus, it's the holiday season. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Cookies and champagne. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like you to know that as of January, we will be moving our schedule to Monday releases as opposed to Friday releases. More about that in the coming weeks. We'd like to thank our Patreon supporters, including David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Jushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. And once again, today's episode is sponsored by Audible with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial at audible.com slash inquiring minds. Thanks again to Heifer International for sponsoring today's episode. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash minds for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash minds. Heifer International, help end hunger. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and... Producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.